Well, do stand with me as we rise this morning to read our sermon text, and you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you today, I would encourage you to use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, nearby you, you'll find this morning's text on page 929, and we're going to look at all of chapter 20 this morning, but to get us going, because it's going to where we spend the vast majority of our time together. Let me uh, just read verse 17 through 38, uh, Paul's final words to the elders of the church at Ephesus, and then I'll pray and, and we'll begin. So listen now as once again God does speak to you through his perfect word. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing exactly what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city imprisonment and afflictions await. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood." I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Our great God of grace, we do humbly ask for your blessing upon your word this morning, asking that you would keep our hearts from those cares and concerns that would that cause us to slumber as you speak, that you would pierce our souls with gospel truth, that we would listen, that I would speak unsure of tomorrow's dawning, but 
confident in Jesus Christ and His word of grace. And we pray these things in our blessed Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the many things that I've been able to do over the course of years in ministry is sit down with pastors who have come to the end of their ministerial race. And as they're about ready to cross that finish line, it's quite common that a younger generation of pastors will gather with that minister and have a chance to just ask him to reflect back on his many years in the ministry, his many decades in in service for Jesus Christ. And invariably, uh, there's a question that gets asked in settings like that. It's, uh, what regrets do you have about your ministry? And it was a few years ago uh, that we were talking with a, a pastor who had just basically come to the end of over three decades at his local congregation, and he was asked that question. You know, what, what regrets do you have in ministry? And he, he said without a pause whatsoever, everything. And what he meant by that was, I could do everything better. And I trust that you know the power that regret can have even over redefining a person's experience. You know, regrets can cripple. Uh, regrets can also inspire. Uh, they can instruct. They can motivate And I tell you that because when we come to Acts chapter 20, we come to Paul's final fond farewell to the Ephesian elders. And if they were to ask Paul there as he's run the course of his ministerial race in Ephesus, you notice as I was reading the text, surely he tells them confidently, you're never going to see me again after I leave. And if they had asked him, Paul, what, what regrets do you have about your ministry among us for the years that you have been here? Astonishingly, And amazingly, yet truthfully, Paul would say, nothing. There's an incredibly useful model of ministerial faithfulness that's in front of us today. If you wanted a ministerial model of faithfulness in miniature, that would mean, how do you serve the Lord Jesus Christ and have no regrets under the Spirit's power? Well, Paul has something to tell you Today, I mean, Acts chapter 20 is justly uh, well-known throughout the Christian centuries as one of the most beloved passages on leadership in a church. You know, if you've heard a sermon, perhaps before, on Acts 20, I would venture to say it's quite likely that that sermon probably came on some type of a significant occasion, maybe the ordination and installation of a minister, maybe even the departure of a pastor, because what we get in Primarily, verse 18 through 35 is a summary of faithful gospel ministry. And that's the theme that I want to put before you today. A summary of faithful gospel ministry. Uh, There is always a keen need in any church of any size, wherever that church is, for faithful leaders. And oftentimes, as the Lord grows His church and the kingdom of our Savior expands and extends to all nations. There's not just a lead for faithful leaders, uh, there's a need for more leaders. Uh, Those of you that have been with Redeemer for a number of years, uh, you've noticed, perhaps as the Lord has continued to bless our congregation, that as the sheep in this church swell in the flock that is Redeemer, uh, there are always a need for more leaders. It's a conversation that even your elders have had as recently as 10 days ago. 
plan to have even later on this week. Many of you in the church have looked around as the church has grown and said, we need more leaders in just a few weeks' time. In the Lord's kindness and providence, in uh, the second time in two and a half years, we're going to send out another church plant, a new daughter church to Allen. And as I've talked with the core group of Cornerstone, there's this need among many, and understandably so, we need leaders. And what I want you to see from our passage today is that that need for leaders needs a biblical caveat. We might say some, some guidance from this apostolic model of a nuance. Because the church doesn't need more leaders. The church needs more qualified leaders who minister in the pattern of what's before you today in Acts chapter 20. Because distinguished leaders tend to make all the difference. We know this intuitively, don't we? The home tends to go as the parents go. The classroom goes as the teacher goes. The team goes as the coach goes. The nation goes as the president or prime minister goes. And likewise, the church ordinarily goes as the leaders go. So we want to see something about a ministerial model that would allow the Apostle Paul to say, I have no regrets whatsoever in my ministry among you. So I want you to see, first of all, in verses 1 through 16, a great awakening. And we'll get through that quite quickly, and then we'll spend most of our time in Paul's great commissioning that comes after that. So first of all, a great awakening. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. Luke tells us, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Now, students, you might remember, if you were with us last week, what this uproar was about that Luke has just mentioned. In chapter 19, Paul was in Ephesus. Paul was preaching the gospel. Paul was planting churches. And as so often happens with Paul, his preaching of Jesus Christ it just resulted in a riot. And this riot in particular had a, had a unique genesis point. Because we know from Paul's preaching in the course of Acts, when he would show up in a city, a part of his preaching would be calling that city, those unbelievers, to turn from idols and to trust in Jesus Christ. And what we heard last week is this man named Demetrius, who is a silversmith in Ephesus. He hears Paul's preaching that would be including a call to turn from idols. And he says to the local silversmith group, we're going to lose all of our profit. All of our money is going to disappear if the people turn from idolatry. And not just that, our, our great goddess Artemis, she's going to lose all of her magnificence. And so they whipped up the citizens of Ephesus into a frenzy. The text told us that for two straight hours, you might remember, uh, the people were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Eventually, the craziness dies down, and what you'll see in verse 1 through 6 is Paul eventually moves on from Ephesus. He goes to Macedonia, he goes to Greece, he goes to Philippi with all these associates mentioned there involved, and he comes to Troas, and as Luke often does, he advances the narrative right uh, quite rapidly, and then he, then he slows it down. It's as though in verse 7, he, he stalls the scene for a second that we might see what happens in Troas. Look at verse 7, on the first day of the week. When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Uh, you can see, can't you, even in, in verse 7, something of the pattern and picture of early church worship. It's, it's quite basic. It's quite glorious, isn't it? They gather on the first day of the week. It's what we now call Sunday. What are they doing? They're breaking bread. I think that's probably an allusion to the Lord's Supper. Certainly there's fellowship. Certainly there's preaching and teaching. And certainly there is lots of preaching 
and teaching. We don't know when the meeting commenced, but it clearly tells us that until midnight, Paul is speaking, Paul is teaching, Paul is talking. But if I told you, hang tight, uh, we'll get to the benediction in about 14 hours' time. Now, I grew up, I told some of you this week, last week, if you were in the evening service, with uh, paternal grandparents that we just love and adore. And my, my grandfather was full of so many humorous things throughout his uh, kindness to us as grandchildren. One of which is, if you ever entered into the church on the Lord's Day with Grandpa, what you would hear if you were close enough to him, uh, there was this kind of quiet rustling, this crinkling noise that would come from his coat pocket. You'd even see a little bit of a bulge in his coat pocket. And if you sat next to him or in front of him or behind him as the sermon was being preached, almost invariably, you, you would hear this gentle rustling, this crinkling noise of something opening. And if you glanced over, what you would see is Grandpa was opening his beloved peppermints, and he would pop one into his mouth, and he would start to pass them down the row. And he wasn't terribly concerned about his breath. He was concerned about staying awake because he would want to suck on the mint in order to stay awake during the message. And it became such a thing in our family that if you ask Grandpa how the sermon went, he would tell you how the sermon went by how many mints it took to keep him awake. Sometimes he would say it was a no-minter. Other times you say it was a little bit of a tough one today. Half a dozen needed to be opened. <laughs> well, what you see, won't you, in verse 9, this young man, Eutychus, that means he's somewhere between 8 and 14 years old. There's no mints to keep him awake, and he's in a dangerous position. Look, in verse 9, he's sitting at the window, and he sank into deep sleep as Paul talked still longer and being overcome by sleep. He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now, kids, you, you can think about that, I trust, the, the danger that might belong to listening to the Apostle Paul teach, and actually the verbs there in the passage would include verbs of dialogue, so it's not just monologue going on for a noticeable length of time. There's discussion happening there on that Lord's Day, and Eutychus is seated up in the windowsill on the third story, and somewhere around midnight, he just nods off, goes down, and he's struck dead. And you could look back in, in church history and might not be surprised how many sermons have been preached from uh, the death of Eutychus as though it was something of, a, of an example placed in God's word to make sure that we all reckon with the spiritual danger that belongs to sleeping through sermons. Which I suppose we, we could say, couldn't we, that there is spiritual danger uh, sleeping through sermons. But that's not the point of why Luke has stalled the story to show us Eutychus. He stalled the story to show us Eutychus' death, so that again we might see in the ministry of Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul, there's resurrection power that comes. Look at verse 10. But when Paul went down, Paul bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. He glanced through the next few verses. There's more fellowship. There's more encouragement. There's more wonder. Eutychus, once dead, now lives. It's a great awakening. And it's meant to show us, certainly in this portrait, that as the Apostle Paul is just going about his ministry, as he's going about this faithful ministry for Jesus Christ, what keeps coming into cities, what keeps coming into homes, what keeps coming into hearts, but resurrection power. There's life, there's newness, there's great glory that belongs to the gospel ministry. And I wonder, as you go about your ordinary life, Paul's just going from city to city. You go from street to street, home to home. What most consistently just comes from you? Is it the savor of the life of Jesus Christ? This 
resurrection power, this resurrection promise that comes in ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, uh, you'll notice in the next few verses, uh, we're told in verse 13 through 16, Paul's in haste to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And the text tells us that he therefore decided to sail past Ephesus. That was his normal pattern at this time. We've already seen that after he had planted a church, he or some of his associates would return to that church not long after to see how they were doing, to see what encouragement and exhortation they might give to him. But because of his haste to get to Jerusalem in time, he sails past Ephesus. They land at Miletus, but he still wants to give something of a word of encouragement and exhortation to the Ephesian elders. So he calls the men of Ephesus to come to Miletus, and it's there we get to the main part of our text today in verse 17 through 38 and Paul's great commissioning of these church leaders. And one of the, the saddest days, I think it's okay to say that, one, one of the saddest days in the history of the Church of England uh, came in 1662. Uh, during that year, over 2,000 Church of England ministers were famously removed from their pulpits for their Reformation principles and understanding of truth and what uh, became known as the Great Ejection. So on October 24th, 1662, over 2,000 ministers, which was an enormous number for uh, a nation of that size back then. 2,000 ministers, they rise to the pulpit, they rise to the sacred decks to, to preach a, a farewell sermon. So many of them preaching farewell sermons that it became known as Farewell Sunday in England. And these men would preach sermons titled like a pastor's legacies or a pastor's love for his people or uh, another sermon I can recall, stand fast in the truth. And as a man named Thomas Watson preached to his congregation, he gave them at the end 20 encouragements. And not to be outdone, Thomas Brooks, at the end of his sermon, offered to his congregation 27 encouragements along the way. And as Paul gets to his fond farewell of the Ephesian elders, you can actually quite easily come up with over 20 encouragements for faithful gospel ministry from this passage. But I just want to fix your attention on five. Five things that every church throughout the age needs from her leaders. If we're to have men... If we're to have servants and shepherds, if we're to have leaders who, who follow in the model, not only of Jesus Christ, but follow in the model of the Apostle Paul, they're going to need at least these five things from the leaders. Number one, the church needs humble leaders. Look at verse 18 and 19. He begins his farewell by saying, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And you could scan your eyes quite quickly through this farewell discourse. You could notice all of the other autobiographical sections of Acts where we find Paul talking about his life and ministry. And if you have eyes to see, what's always noticeably absent from what Paul shares in those autobiographical sections is all of the miracles that the Lord did through him. You know, these exorcisms, these healings, these like demonstrations of supernatural strength and, and resurrection power, what Paul is always and only amplifying is his simple obedience to his commission that he preach the gospel to all people. Because he had a commission, didn't he, from his Lord, from his master. That meant he was nothing more than just a humble servant who was supposed to do his duty. That's why he says, with all humility and with tears, with, with trials that happened to me, through the plots of my opponents. 
I trust you know your Bible well enough to know that multiple times the Lord tells us he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, There's nothing worse, is there, than for church leaders to demonstrate constant pride and and arrogance, a a ministry that's little more than self-promotion. What gets the Lord's smiles is a ministry of humility, even a ministry of tears. I have often wondered how far too many churches might be struggling today because leaders' tear ducts are altogether dried up. When Paul and our Lord Jesus Christ himself could often be found because of their love for the sheep, because of their love for lost souls gone to perishing if they continue to remain in rejection of Jesus Christ while they, with humility and tenderness, they have tears in the midst of their trials. So we need humble leaders. Number two, uh, we need gospel leaders. The church needs gospel leaders. Because kids, if you were paying attention as I read the passage a few minutes ago, you you might have noticed this word, this verb, keep showing up in the main part of Paul's farewell address, and it's this verb of testify. Let me see if you can notice it quite easily. Look at verse 20. He says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So his ministry was one of testimony. It's testimony to the gospel. And what you see actually in the next two verses is that that there was a corresponding testimony in his own heart that what he was to expect in ministry was difficulty. Because look at what he says in 22 and 23. He says, I'm constrained by the Spirit to get to Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. I had a conversation not long ago with a, a church leader who uh, was genuinely beat down. And, you know, such a thing actually happens all the time in ministry, but this particular conversation was one which uh, perhaps it was just because he was starting out in ministry. He was just overwhelmed and surprised by how difficult it was. And I thought to myself, maybe you need to read Acts 20 and the Spirit testifying to the Apostle Paul that it was going to be hard. And his difficulty was much greater than ours is going to be. And surely, for those that follow in the pattern of Christ's ministry, will likewise experience difficulty along the way. But he keeps testifying. Notice uh, what we're told in verse 24. He says, it doesn't matter to me, this imprisonment, this persecution. My life is of no value. Only what values, look at verse 24, is that I may finish my course, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. You know, I, I suppose I'd have to go back and look, but I, I think that this is only the second time the actual word gospel is used in this sense in Acts, and Paul is content to define it as nothing more than the gospel of God's grace that demands he testify to it, but his testimony isn't done. You'll see in verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul's primary purpose in the ministry was preaching. Uh, Paul's desire in the ministry was little more than testifying to the grace of Jesus Christ. You, you might say in a different way that we would often use words like in our time of Paul's preoccupation and passion was Jesus Christ. He knew that Christ was full of all surpassing worth, 
And therefore, the all-consuming desire of ministry must be testifying to the gospel. The church needs gospel leaders. A friend of mine was recently having a conversation with a noted New Testament scholar who is coming to the end of his ministry in a variety of ways. And I don't know, for the last 50 years or so, he's been quite an influential scholar in the New Testament world, at least here in America. And this scholar has been well known for speaking about what he learned as a singular lesson over the course of his many decades in being a professor. Because he said, if I've learned anything in 35, 40 years of teaching is that my students don't learn everything that I tell them. And of course, like every parent and, and leader would understand, yeah, kids don't hear everything that we tell them. Students don't hear everything that we tell them. But he went on to say, uh, what they do remember is what excites me most. And so he said, I resolved early on that what must excite me most in my ministry was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I do think that perhaps many churches, more than they realize, have an excitement that's misplaced. Uh, you get so exercised and excited about things that aren't the simple matters of first importance. You know how easy it is for a church's excitement to be over land and large buildings, when what we really want to be excited about is an increasing love of Jesus Christ in our hearts. So often what can excite us most during the week is something of school, sports, what we see on a screen. Clearly for the Apostle Paul in this faithful ministry, it's souls being one to Jesus Christ. Being so be preoccupied with our preferences being met, that we've lost a passion for Jesus Christ. And so the church of Jesus Christ ceased to be known as a church excited most about Jesus Christ. Paul was a gospel man. He tells us that we need gospel leaders, humble leaders. Thirdly, we need watchful leaders. The church needs watchful leaders. Look at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Some of you know this famous book series that has a character in one of the books. It teaches defense against the dark arts. He's got this phrase, constant vigilance, that he shouts at his students all the time. And it's a, it's a phrase that would be quite apt in gospel ministry. Constant vigilance. Because what does he say? Watch, but notice, first, watch yourselves. But there's this internal, inward watchfulness required of God's servants if they're to be faithful in the church that the Lord has entrusted to them. There must be this inward watching of the heart how easy it is, isn't it, for us to be ever watchful about the sins of others and completely immune to the sins within our own heart. But it's not just watchfulness on the inside. Paul's going to go on to say that we need watchful leaders who pay attention to, yeah, what's actually outward. But he's speaking more directly to the church. Notice how he continues in assurance, verse 29 and 30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The Bible itself and church history also, it's, it's full of all these stories that after a godly leader dies or a godly leader departs, you watch that godly congregation begin to deteriorate quite quickly because falsehood creeps in. 
Paul even says here to the Ephesian elders, from among you, we would say in our Presbyterian circles, within the session room, error creeps in far too easily. Well, we should be grateful that the Lord has protected us from that here at Redeemer in these days. But ever watchful, leaders must be aware that it could happen. And we know even as the Bible records the further story of Ephesus that it happened quite quickly. If you turn later on today, this afternoon, you could read through First Timothy in particular. Just a few years after Paul said this to the Ephesian elders. He's left his protege, Paul has left his protege, Timothy in Ephesus. And he says, I've left you there and charged you to, to charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. That falsehood is already, just a few years after this fond farewell, begin to creep into the life of God's people. Satan's fifth column is always lurking in the church hallways, so church leaders must be watchful, must be people full of the gospel, people full of humility. Don't you see, fourthly, they must be hopeful people. The church needs hopeful leaders, you know, I've preached this passage before, and actually only of one verse in the passage. And it was here in verse 32. It was the last church that I left, and it was kind of my farewell Sunday, and it was uh, the pastor's fond farewell, and you can understand why it's so apt. But I want you to hear Paul's hopefulness here. I now commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, kids, I wonder if any of you went to a restaurant this week. If you did, it's likely that you experienced, believe it or not, something about what Paul mentions here in verse 32, because this word here for commend, it would have been used in that ancient world of like a dining room where you set something before another person. You commend something to them. And in that like manner, in the same way a server might set a meal before a person, here's Paul saying, I'm going to set you Leaders there of the church at Ephesus, I'm going to set you, I'm going to commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is powerful, which is able to grow you, which is able to give you the inheritance that belongs to all those in Jesus Christ. Many of us commend many things during the week, and many of those things are wonderful. How often do you commend people? Do you serve people with the truths about God, the truths about his word of grace that he trusts is no doubt able to keep them. So amidst all the trials, the tribulations, the testings, and the troubles that are going to come to Ephesus, he knows the church ultimately is going to triumph because of God, because of his word of grace. So Paul's hopeful. Finally, quite quickly, the church needs sacrificial leaders. Verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold. What does he say? But in verse 34, I worked hard. Why did I work hard? Because I wanted to be faithful to the Lord's command at the end of verse 35, the statement that it's more blessed to give than to receive. You have many lunches as a church pastor throughout the week. So many, in fact, that one of my kids actually told me a few months ago, I said, Dad, is being a pastor just means you eat with people? Because, <laughs> you know, normally I'll say, what are you going to do tomorrow, Dad? Well, I got breakfast with so-and-so, and I got lunch with so-and-so, and... Then perhaps later on, we're going to have someone over for dinner, you know, these kind of things. And I was having a lunch with a, a pastor not long ago, and uh, he was talking about, he's from a different denomination, and he, he was talking about the struggle in his own denomination uh, about uh, young ministers' expectation for monetary comfort in the gospel ministry and the difficulty that he was having uh, trying to tell the, these young future pastors 
no one gets into ministry to be wealthy, or at least no one should be getting into ministry to get wealthy. The Apostle Paul, if you know his letters well, he often will say, I mean, I had every right to receive support, monetary and financial commitment from the church, but so often in order that he might set a model for others to follow, he worked hard with his own hands. And so his ministry was altogether one of sacrifice. This is a summary, isn't it, of faithful ministry. You have uh, the church needing humble leaders. They need gospel leaders, watchful and hopeful leaders. Uh, they also need sacrificial leaders. Last week when Pastor Miller was preaching about Paul planting the church at Ephesus, some of you, if you were here, you might remember he mentioned this statement from the church father Ignatius. So about 50 years after Paul speaks this final fond farewell, he, he, Ignatius wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus saying there early in the second century that, quote, this church was so renowned throughout the world. And surely part of that renown must have been due, in part, to some of these men and the next generations of leaders being faithful in the gospel ministry entrusted to them. Now, I want you to know, as we have this beloved passage on church leadership before us today, that I have no interest whatsoever in Redeemer Presbyterian Church being renowned in the city. I think it's okay to say, who cares? But I have every interest in us modeling a faithful ministry. That means Jesus Christ is renowned in this city. And he will be renowned. We trust in the Spirit's power as, as we walk as leaders, shepherds, servants, but all of us together as saints in this humility and this excitement over the truth of Jesus Christ, and this watchfulness, and this hopefulness, and this sacrificial desire to see the gospel go forth. And as we end, let me just give you three more things. Three more things that must be true in our ministry if Christ might be renowned in the way that he clearly was in the city of Ephesus. Number one, we must minister the comfort of Jesus Christ. So glance back to that first section. The Great Awakening passage actually has bookends to it. Look at verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell, and he departed from Macedonia. Skip down to verse 12. After the Great Awakening of Eutychus, they took away the youth alive, and not a little were comforted. Uh, the word there for comfort is very much like one we would use for encouragement today. Uh, many of you know, don't you? Encouragement is oxygen for the soul. And Acts tells us Paul is a master encourager. What he loved to do, not just plant churches and preach the gospel, he would return to the churches he planted and ensure that he was able to encourage them, to be steadfast, to be always unshakable and immovable in their faith. Now we want to be a church that's more skilled in the comfort of Jesus Christ than criticism and simple desire to correct I thought about this actually earlier this week as a ministry mentor of mine. Uh, he actually wrote in one of his books, he said, so many times I've seen men, particularly younger guys, act as if real leadership is shown in correcting others. That's why young men's sermons so often scold. What they haven't figured out is that you can often accomplish more by encouragement. There are times to scold. But he ends by saying 80 to 90% of what you hope to correct can be accomplished through encouragement. I wonder who you might encourage, whom you might be able to comfort today in Jesus Christ. So we must minister the comfort of Jesus Christ. Number two, we must minister in constancy for Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 31. 
Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish every one of you with tears. He speaks, didn't he, in verse 18, about the whole time of his ministry, modeling and exemplifying humility. There's this consistency, there's this constancy in Paul's ministry that saw the church grow, that saw Jesus Christ expand his kingdom, even in that city of Ephesus. And don't many of us need something of the application of Christ's mercy for our service to the Lord is not constant, perhaps not nearly as consistent as we want. It just goes and comes, these fits and starts. And so we want the comfort of Christ in our ministry. We want constancy for Christ in our ministry. And, and finally, we want the care of Christ in our ministry. Look at the end of verse 28. Pay attention, you shepherds of this flock. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It really is the, the, the epicenter of the gospel in this passage. You know, there's gospel gold that you can mine there. You can turn over in your head and soul even later on this day. For, for what does it tell us so much glorious truth about Christ's care for the church? Now, who is the one who cares? Well, it says he we know that in context, he's referring to Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, being obedient even to the very point of death on the cross. So we know something about the identity of the one who cares. But don't we see, even notice verse 28 as it continues, something about the certainty of Christ's care. Maybe you're in here today and you ask, how, how do I know that the Lord Jesus loves sinners like me? How do I know that sin has truly been put away in his death, burial, and resurrection? Well, you see, the certainty of his care, he obtained. It doesn't say he will obtain, he might obtain, he could obtain, or even he can obtain. No, he obtained sinners like you and me. How? Well, that's the surety and the beauty of the passage, isn't it? With his own blood. A bloody sacrifice was required. And that good news that Paul, so Paul often preached, wasn't it? It was that blood needed to be shed for, for sin. And for those of you in the room today that have never turned to Jesus Christ, the warning, the admonishment even of this text is, if you repent or you don't repent and don't come to Jesus Christ, your blood will have to be shed for your sins. But the glorious good news of Christ's care for his church is that if you look to him, the Lord applies his perfect and precious blood over your sins and washes it away. So sinner, would you know Christ's care? Or you look to blood shed on your behalf and saints in the room, what care you should have for the church. If this is the Lord's care for his people, what kind of care do you have for his people? What we want is a ministry that's faithful. What we want is a ministry it's humble, full of the gospel, watchful, hopeful, sacrificial, that Jesus Christ would be known in us, through us. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to know something of the care that you have for us. We confess even unto you this day that we have fallen short, haven't we, this week? There are small thoughts of the Savior. 
with our sins that presume upon your grace and let us know that it's your kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance, that your patience towards us is meant to raise our gaze to Jesus Christ. So help us to renew our faithfulness to you this day. Help us to walk with newness of life and obedience before you as our hearts repent of our sins, knowing that the blood of Jesus Christ covers all iniquity. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.